It's wonderful to sing God's praises together and hear one another's voices and meditate upon our awesome God. And I'm delighted uh, that we can do that together. Turn uh, with me once again this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to hang out around verses 10, uh, 10 through 12 this morning. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. We know that in chapter 3, this, this paragraph here, verses 9 through 13, we know Peter begins to shift his emphasis a little bit from how we should treat one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and he shifts the emphasis over to how we are to interact with the hostile world around us. And that shift begins to take place around verse 9 and continues down through 15 through 16 at least. And especially how we are to interact with those who are hostile to us because we are Christians, because we associate with the name of Jesus. I'd rather say it that way. The term Christian often has lost a lot of meaning. But the issue there is who you associate with. And the issue in the Scriptures is, if you are willingly associate with this man, whom we know to be the Messiah, if you associate with him, whom we also know to be the historic Jesus, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, if you clearly associate with him, that's what occasions the hostility. Okay, you can talk all day about vain ideas, you know, God loves everybody and that's just wonderful, right? And uh, everybody but Hitler is going to heaven and God this, God that. Just leave out Jesus' name and your religion will be fairly well accepted. But when you bring this man's name in, that this man, Jesus, is the eternal, equal with God, equal with the Father, Son of God, and He is Lord over all the nations, which He received as an inheritance because of His suffering. And He offers you mercy because of the cross. And it's the only way you will ever be reconciled to God. And you surely will be if you believe in Him and embrace Him. When you bring Him in, that's where the hostility comes. Okay? That's the hostility. And Peter's describing that kind of hostility multiple places in this letter. And how we, as believers in Jesus Christ, are to respond to that hostility. So, these hostile conditions that Peter describes were prevalent and expected during the early centuries. Jesus taught his disciples to expect such, Matthew 10:25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? See, that's that association. You associate with this man, this master, they called him Beelzebub. How much more are they going to call you vile names? and throw your name out as evil. In John 15, 21, after giving a whole list of hostile acts, Jesus says, all these things they will do to you 
for my name's sake. You see, that's it. They're doing it to you for what? My name's sake. Now listen to this. Because they do not know Him who sent me. The root of the hostility that you and I endure is because they do not know the Father who sent Jesus into our world. Keep that in mind. The reason they behave that way is because they don't know God. They don't know the true God. That's why they behave the way they do. And that should help us do the commands to love them. (laughs) To love your enemies. They are your enemies because they don't know your Father. They don't know Jesus as Father. And therefore, they are enemies. That's why they do it. That's, that's what Jesus says. They do this because they do not know Him who sent me. You have to think about that. It'll help us. As followers of Christ, we are called to respond to such hostilities in the most extraordinary way. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Lord, are you serious? <laughs> yes, he's serious. And the best way to not return evil for evil is to quickly pursue obedience to the second aspect of the command. If I'm pursuing giving of a blessing, I will not be returning evil for evil. When someone has committed an evil against you, if you get busy on figuring out how to return a blessing, you'll be greatly delivered from returning an evil, won't you? Absolutely. To behave in this way is to image God. For He is the ultimate one who has returned good for evil, the evil of mankind against Him. How has He responded to the evil of mankind? Sending His Son into our world to deliver us from the horribleness of our situation, which is all our rebellion and sin and disobedience and dislike of His authority. How does He respond? He has the gospel preached to you and me about His Son. Do you realize that? That's how He has responded. That's utterly amazing. So He is the one that ultimately does what He's calling Christians to do. And when we do it, we image Him. How are they going to know God? They don't know Him. How are they going to know Him? Only through you and I. They're not going to know Him any other way. That's correct. How are they going to know Jesus through you and I, as you and I image Him? They're not going to know Him any other way. What an awesome blessing and responsibility we have. We who are associated with Jesus Christ. So, we must never forget that the cross and our salvation is one massive display of the Lord returning good in the place of evil. He's doing for us He is doing for us 
what He is calling us to do for others. Understand that? He's doing for us what He's calling us to do for others. That's how the Gospel works. It's a wonderful thing. Now, we learn from chapter 3, 9 through 10, we learn that we have been called to return good for evil so that we may inherit a blessing. To prove this assertion, Peter quotes from Psalm 34. Notice his reasoning. Knowing that you were called to this, returning good for evil, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, even with our enemies. (laughs) And if we pursue that, the text assures us we shall inherit a blessing. We shall be blessed. John Brown, quote, God does not intend by requiring you to deny your resentful feelings that you are to be ultimate losers. <laughs> Rather, He intends to bless you for obeying Him. I like that, okay? He doesn't re- require that we be ultimate losers by returning good for evil and blessing for cursing. No, no that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 12 provides an explanation of why the righteous are blessed. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. You see, the Lord is involved in our suffering of hostilities from others. The Lord knows exactly what's going on. When someone commits an injustice against you, the Lord's eye observes all of that. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how you're being treated. And He calls you to respond in a certain way. And He promises a blessing. He would love life and see good days. Let him do that. You have to have strong ammunition to get through those times, and this is it. You have to believe these things and think this way. His eyes are upon the righteous. That means he has affectionately set his attention on you. That's that Old Testament expression. It's an expression of great affection. Like, like a parent has for their child. God's affectionate watch care. And He hears their prayers. Those are more things for us to know. To help us not return evil for evil, but good instead. What then? The only reasonable thing to do is to restrain my tongue from evil and make sure I do not speak deceit. I must turn away from evil and do good. I must seek peace and pursue it. I will be blessed if I do these things. That's what the text says. You will inherit a blessing if you do these things. So let's look at those three commands in some more detail 
the text is laid out very easily, let him refrain his tongue from evil. See, that's the not reviling for reviling. Let him restrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. We need to pay close attention to how we speak, to what we speak and how we speak. The Word of God places a major emphasis upon how we speak to others. Jesus established the principle that what? Out of the heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is no doubt that the most powerful instrument you have for evil or good is your tongue. Is that true? That is true. A reading of the book of Proverbs will confirm my statement. The power of life and death are in the tongue. That's what the text says. The power of life or death are in the power of the tongue. It's the most powerful instrument for good or evil that human beings have. It's language. We're made in the image of God. It all connects. God's Word is powerful, isn't it? So therefore, what? Our Word is powerful. His Word is powerful. Our Word is powerful. We're made in His image. It's not as powerful as His, of course, but it's there. And our speech can produce great evil. And our speech can also produce great good. (laughs) The power of life and death are in your tongues and in my tongue. James' famous statement, the tongue is a little member. <laughs> oh boy, this is, uh, this is imagery at its best. <laughs> I wish I had the literacy of a James. I mean, listen to this. The tongue is a little member. You know it really is. Your hands are bigger than your tongue. Probably your fingers are bigger than your tongue. <laughs> All kinds of things on our bodies are bigger than that little tongue, that little organ of speech. The tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. <laughs> See how great a forest a little flame kindles? How great a forest fire a little flame kindles? And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. That's true, isn't it? And how many forest fires have I set? How many forest fires have you set? And have preachers set? We can go on and on with the use of our tongue. My sister was converted by this passage. (laughs) My older sisters. I don't have time to tell the story. Just because it is so true. And she knew it was so true. 
Now, what we must do is to restrain what we say. That's what the text says. Let him hold back his tongue from evil. Let him restrain his tongue from evil. Your tongue and mine need a restraint upon them. James uses another vivid expression. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and what does not bridle his tongue, what is that? That is to restrain. You put a bridle on the animal to restrain the animal. So if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. It's worthless. Worthless religion. Unwilling to bridle one's tongue. Now, if an unbridled tongue reveals that one's religion is worthless, James also says the opposite. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. We cannot allow our mouths to spew out whatever is in our hearts. That's what we're being exhorted to do. To not allow our mouths to spew out whatever is in our hearts, but to restrain that. We must judge ourselves before we speak. You must learn the godly discipline of doing that. Judge yourself before you open your mouth. (laughs) Can I be blunt? I speak to myself. And judging our speech should lead to judging our hearts. Because that's the problem. You'll never control your tongue until you control your heart. And oh, how true that is. When your heart's aflame, (laughs) your tongue's going to set fires. That's just the plain wisdom of the Word of God about this matter. Peter mentions one particular form of evil speech, deceit. Lying is an offense to God. It's on God's hatred list. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to Him. The first one, a proud look. Second, a lying tongue. That's number two on God's abomination list. A proud look and a lying tongue. Lying destroys trust and relationships. You know, you want to destroy your marriage? Start lying to each other. Start covering, not being naked. You want to build a strong marriage? Never, never lie to each other. Doesn't matter. Don't do it. Don't do it. That'll be part of a foundation of an enduring marriage. Lying, that use of the tongue, destroys trust. Marriage can't function without trust. 
God's wiser than we are. (laughs) Oh, how hard it is at times to be convinced of that. I think I'm just going to lie through this one and everything's going to be better. Mm -mm. God's far wiser than we are. You need to trust Him enough to believe that. So, refrain your tongue. Refrain His tongue from evil and His lips from speaking deceit. That we are without excuse for evil speech is strengthened by the context which commands us not to return reviling for reviling. In view of all that Scripture says on this subject, I would urge you to be quick to confess your sins. None of you and me, none of us, are perfect men or women. What does that mean according to James? We are going to stumble with our tongues. (laughs) If any man doesn't stumble with his tongue, he is a perfect man. There are no perfect men or women in this building. So the realism is this matter of the tongue has to be dealt with and confronted. We're all going to stumble at times with our tongues. And so I just encourage you to acknowledge that before God. Be quick to confess your sins of evil speaking to God and to those individuals whom you've sinned against. Do not justify any wholesome words that proceed out of your mouth, but rather seek to be the first one to condemn them. And ask God for forgiveness, and He in Christ will abundantly forgive your bad tongue. And if you have to do it five times a day, confess it and ask His forgiveness five times that day. And you'll be pursuing the right course, not trying to cover it, not trying to excuse it, but acknowledge it to your heavenly Father and ask for His help and mercy. Unconverted people can't control their tongues. (laughs) We don't have time. But one one of the things that happens often, and adults especially, when they get converted is boom! (laughs) Their tongue suddenly is under control. It's the most astounding thing. I'm not going to say every time in every case, but but all I'm saying is, is we cannot save ourselves. And part of salvation is to be delivered from the dominion of an evil speaking tongue. That's part of the salvation that Jesus brings. Okay? Praise God. There's hope. I don't want you to despair. There's hope if you seek the Savior who saves us from sin. Now, if your problem isn't sin, there is no hope. Got it? You shall call His name Jesus, for it is He who will save His people from their sins. So if your problem is sin, I got great news for you. Jesus saves. Absolutely. Okay? And that's the attitude to have about your tongue. Okay, we need to move on. 
Psalm 34 continues with the second command, let him turn away from evil and do good. Well, obviously, turning away from evil can begin by restraining our evil speech. But if we are to be blessed, our entire life must be an endeavor to turn away from evil. You know, I thought, you know, you should wake up in the morning and say, well, what do I want to accomplish today? I know, I know what I want to accomplish today. I want to turn away from evil today. (laughs) That's my purpose. That's my high-level purpose, Lord. That's what I want to accomplish (laughs) Help me today to turn away from evil and do good. Help me do that. That's our entire life, that we have that endeavor. There's no neutrality here. The world is not the world that the utopians and the secular psychologists and the educational elite believe they are trying to create. No, Rather, humanity, apart from God's grace, is accurately described by Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, is that clear enough? That's pretty clear. That's humanity. And that's what Romans chapter 3 is about. It's the Word of God description of humanity apart from His grace. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's why we're all called to turn away from evil. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Okay? Again, Jesus came to save people who are lost. That's a description of all of us before Jesus saves us. And it's a humbling, alarming process at times to be converted. Because you have to face up to the fact that that is an accurate description of you. It is. And but we're being commanded here to what? Let him turn away from evil and do good. And yet all of humanity says there is none who does good. No, not one. And the command is turn away from doing evil and do good. How can we possibly do that? Well, through the Savior. Through Jesus Christ, who has come to save us from the practice of evil and to forgive us for all the evil we have practiced. That's the only way to do this. Evil is that which displeases God. Evil is that which is inconsistent with God's character. Evil is that which violates the law of God. We have to use God's standards, not man. Not man's. If turning away from evil becomes your major pursuit, then what others do to you becomes less and less important. Now get a hold of this. 
They may treat me with evil, but what I'm busy doing is turning away from evil. You see, my goal is to turn away from evil. My desire is to not be like them. They are set on pursuing evil. They are even pursuing evil against me. But I don't want to be like them. My desire is to turn away from evil. So in response to their evil, since my desire is to turn away from evil, I'm not going to render an evil back. You get it? My focus is somewhere else. My command, my endeavor is to turn away from evil. And if they've committed evil against me, and I respond the same way, I'm just like them. I'm not turning away from evil. I am returning an evil for evil. That's how we have to think. K. Jobes writes, quote, When faced with unjust insult and evil, Peter's readers must decide whether to respond in kind out of the old nature and perpetrate strife or to demonstrate the power of God's grace through radically new conduct. Amen? Amen. That's right. A transition takes place in verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. See, you can't just stop with turning away from evil. That's good. But you must occupy yourself with how to do good in the situation. And this will be a great means of turning away from evil, of not returning evil for evil, but on the other hand, a blessing Many times, the most good we can do is the restraining ourselves. This is good, but we must go further. We're called to go further. We must remember that we are called to positively do good. Turn away from evil and do good. Don't remain neutral. Don't remain passive. We're called positively to do good. How do I begin? Remember this command. And ask the Lord in the midst of the situation, how do I do good in this situation? Ask the question, how many times when you or I have received a hostility, we have not even broached that question? How may I do good in this situation? (laughs) We don't even ask the question. And yet we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to do good. Don't return evil for evil, but good. Do good. So I encourage you, in the midst of the fire and the shrapnel, you ask that question. Boom, you've received an evil. You ask the question, Lord, how do I return good for this? You ask that question. 
And you ask the Lord that question. And you see if He doesn't answer that prayer. (laughs) And you see if your mind doesn't light up (laughs) with an answer to that question. See? Turn away from that evil and, and do good. Lord, what good do I do in this situation? You might say, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Maybe he'll say that. He might say, graciously get up and walk out of the room. I don't know. Okay? There's a whole host of things. Or he might say, just return a soft answer. Okay? But ask that question. How do I do good in this concrete moment? Because, Lord, you've called me to turn away and do good instead. Ask that question. Perhaps the last part of verse 11 is the answer to this question in many situations which these commands apply. So let's turn to the third, the third item listed. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Perhaps that's the answer to the question. What do I do? Pursue peace. Seek peace and pursue it. Here's a concrete example of doing good. It is a good thing that we embrace peace when it's offered to us and not insist on the continuation of a a quarrel, getting our pound of flesh. You know, it's a good thing that we embrace peace. Or at least we drop returning evil for evil and engage in non-sinful dialogue. However, we are called to do much more than passively wait until our opponent recognizes his or her folly and comes to us offering peace. Well, if they do come to you offering peace, you should try to accept it. But we're called to do much more than to wait, you know, until our uh, brother or sister or whoever recognizes their folly. No. Rather, we are called to, what does the text say? Seek peace and pursue it. Those are strong verbs. Verbs are action words, aren't they? (laughs) There's no allowance here for sitting and doing nothing. No allowance for delayed, extended inactivity. The command says, seek peace and pursue it. Police officers engage in pursuits, endeavoring to overtake the one they are pursuing. That's our verb. That's the idea in these words. Pursue peace. Surely we should realize that pursuing peace will have a major effect on the use of our tongue. Absolutely. Seeking and pursuing peace means that we should be initiating peace. We should be initiating. We shouldn't be waiting for the other person, the other organization, the other church to take the first step. We shouldn't be waiting for that. But this is where we fail so often. Each party is waiting on the other. So often. Each party is just waiting on the other. 
We do that in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of relationships. It's not seeking and pursuing peace. Both parties are responsible to seek peace. Well, he's the one that acted so horribly. I'm going to sit and wait until he comes to me. God says you can't do that. That's not right. She's the one that acted so horribly. So I'm just going to go to the other in the house and I'm going to sit here and I don't care how long. And I'm going to justify myself because she started it. And I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait. You know what God's going to do? He's going to blow that whole thing up in your face. He's going to blow that whole method up in your face. Because you are in blatant disobedience. Each party, each party is commanded to seek and pursue peace. It takes wisdom to do that, but it's clear each party is supposed to do something. That's God's standard. And when you practice it, you will be blessed. Okay. Blessed, what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay? Thus says the Word of God. There's nothing like the Word of God. <laughs> There's no wisdom like this. There's no other source for this wisdom. So, seek peace and pursue it. Scripture has a whole, whole bunch to say about this, uh, pursuing uh, peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. You'll be like God. You, know, you want to be like God? Follow these commands. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. There it is. Kindness. Right there. The power of the Holy Spirit enables us to go in the right direction. It's a supernatural thing. This is Christianity. This is not moralism. This is not some ethic, moral, dumbed-down moral code. This is, this is like being like God. Being, being restored to the image of God. That's why these commands are just so... They're just so big. Because it's a reflection of God's character. God behaves these ways. And, and He's provided a Savior to restore His image in us. Isn't that wonderful? And we are what? Being what? Conformed to what? The image of His Son. That's all part of the plan of salvation. So be encouraged. <laughs> Your Savior is bigger than all of these sins and problems. Trust and obey. Just like Moses told the people at the Red Sea, Why are you standing here? And the Lord said, Why are you standing here? Tell the people to go forward. And granted, when you're seeking and pursuing peace, you bet there's dangers. But you have to go forward. To seek and pursue peace. And both parties 
are responsible to initiate. Romans 12, if it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, beloved. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. There's great advice for how to seek and pursue peace. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which we might edify one another. James again about this. But the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that is from above, I've used that term quite a bit in this message. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Willing to yield. You think you can solve some conflicts by that string of adjectives? The wisdom from above is first pure, second peaceable, third gentle, fourth willing to yield. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm dug in over here. Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. You want to promote righteousness? We often say this backwards. We say you want to promote peace, promote righteousness. This text reverses it. You want to bear the fruit of righteousness, sow in peace. Is that true? That is true. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wow. That's right. Well, that was the The third one. Coming to verse 12, we see a blessing to be secured and a curse to be avoided. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We will be blessed for pursuing our calling of returning good for evil, because the Lord is involved in these events. His eyes are on the righteous. He's involved in this. And His ears are open to their prayers. However, with the Lord there is no partiality. Believers will also receive chastisement when we do evil. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The law of the harvest, what you sow you shall reap, which operates on all of mankind, is not suspended in the life of a believer. It's not. You're going to sow what you reap. God our Heavenly Father even though He has forgiven us past, present, and the future, still ensures that wrongdoing is not rewarded but opposed. Look what God did to Solomon. 
Look what God did to David. What did he do? He set his face against them, didn't he? Absolutely. And as a loving father's face is against his disobedient son or daughter, so our father's face is against us when we do evil. He will never disown us or remove us from his love. No, absolutely not. But when I'm on a course of pursuing evil, his face will be against me when I do evil. Peter says that. Peter quotes that. He doesn't condition it. That's the way it's going to work. God's going to ensure that it works that way. So, a blessing and a warning. And it is his love. Mothers, fathers, it's an act of your love when you set your face against your child Graciously, when your child is pursuing evil, isn't it? That's an absolute act of your love for your children when you do that. Okay? You don't disown them. You don't hate them. You don't judicially punish them. You chastise them. There's a difference. <laughs> but when you set your face against them on their course of evil, you are loving them. And that's exactly how God treats us. That's a good thing. That's the only reason we persevere. (laughs) How else can you stay on that narrow way if it wasn't for the Lord doing this, right? I'd have jumped off that path. So, I have a few things to say in conclusion here. Following the Master who left us an example to follow. Of course, Jesus was the example of refraining one tongues from evil. He never uttered a sinful word. (sighs) Wow, that's right. Turning away from evil and doing good, Jesus is the master of masters of turning away from evil. He was a true man, true humanity, okay? He was a master of turning from evil and doing good. That means he can coach you. He can sympathize with you. As Hebrews says, as a man, he turned away from evil. During his temptation by the devil, he turned away from evil, didn't he? Absolutely. Follow the master. How did he do it? There's such instruction in how Jesus dealt with the temptations there. He turned away from evil. Peter said earlier in chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He turned away from evil and did good. When his disciples were ready to call down fire from heaven to destroy the inhospitable Samaritans, he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The out of sympathy problem. (laughs) They were out of sympathy with the Lord. Yeah, the Samaritans were inhospitable, which was a great offense in that culture. (laughs) But Jesus had to rebuke them. He turned away from evil and did good. The third thing there, seek peace and pursue it. 
Seek peace and pursue it. Is there anyone who has sought and pursued peace more than Father and Son? There isn't. At Jesus' birth, this is the description that was given of Him and what His mission is and was. To give light to those who sit in darkness. I'm quoting from Luke one seventy nine regarding the child, the prophecy that was made over the child from Zacharias. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There it is. He is the one who's being incarnated, taken upon human nature. And why is he doing that? To give us light, sit in darkness. Why else? To guide our feet into the way of peace. First, peace with God. That's the fundamental peace. Christ guides our feet into reconciliation with God. That is going to bear the fruit of guiding our feet into peace and reconciliation with one another. That's the only way that humanity makes progress. And that's Jesus' mission. To guide our feet into the way of peace. That means I can cry out to Him for help. Lord, my feet have wandered all over different ways that aren't peaceful. Lord, You guide my feet into the way of peace. That is Your mission. And Paul says this, and he came, referring to Christ, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Were we seeking him? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) We were far off. All we like sheep have turned our own ways. We were just far off. And here he comes, right? And preaches peace to you who were far off. Let him seek peace. That's what he does. To you who are far off. And he preached peace to those who were near. And that's a reference to the Jews. You and I would be lost, lost, lost. If Jesus Christ was not, is not the one who initiates to seek and pursue peace and to reconcile us to His heavenly Father. The Gospel is the basis of all of this. We are triple lost if Jesus was not the one who initiates to seek and pursue peace and reconcile us to His heavenly Father. That we must never lose sight of. And that becomes a foundation for us beginning to treat others the way He has treated us. And if you think you have little offense against Him, I would just urge you to rethink and read some of Jesus' parables. 
Because self-righteousness is absolutely dangerous. And I don't want any of you to have the false hope that comes from self-righteousness. And Jesus so warned against that. No, God's holy, we're not. He's full of mercy for those who call upon Him in humility to be saved for no other reason than the blood of Jesus Christ. And that will save and forgive and transform you. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, you are awesome. We thank you that you seek and pursue peace. And we thank you that you've done that with so many of us. Lord, you know we often haven't. (laughs) And yet you call us to come as your children and just agree with you. And you forgive us. And we so thank you for that. But Lord, we also want power. Power to be like Jesus. Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us? The fruit of the Spirit is peace, gentleness. Lord, we're not peaceful people. We're not gentle. Lord, so we ask, because of the great worth of Jesus' life and death and sacrifice, and all the promises are procured in him, that you pour out a greater measure upon your people, your churches, even us, in this day when we are going to have more and more opportunity to image you to the world around us. Blessed, Lord, you say, are those who are persecuted, and blessed are the peacemakers. Lord, equip us for the task. You called us, equip us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.